Okay, so Philippians chapter 3, we, we've said a, a couple of weeks ago, one, one guy said, you know, you can analyze this text, but really what we want to do is let this text draw us to more and more devotion to Jesus Christ. And so I keep trying to move past it, but uh, this week I had four different conversations with four different people, I hope I can remember them all, that just really showed me the importance of this text. And so I just thought, you know, I I hope it'll be encouraging to you as I try to encourage these uh, people whose stories I heard. So today, really what we're looking at is uh, really verse 10. It's really chapter 3 and verse 10. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about verse 11, but, but really it's the two opposing seemingly contrasting and yet deeply related, and I hope you're listening to me right now, they're, they're opposed and they seem to be contrasting, but in, in actuality, the two concepts in verse 10 are deeply connected with each other, all right? That's really where I want to, I, I hope I can help you appreciate that. Uh, the lesson title this morning for chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 is, uh, I had a few of them, but this is what I landed on. What did you expect? Now, that's the title of a book on marriage uh, by this guy, Paul Tripp. And, you know, basically he's saying, yeah, marriage is challenging. What did you expect? I like to call it, what were you thinking? Uh, But he calls it, what did you expect? And you see the subtitle here, sanctification isn't for sissies. Sanctification is God's work in our lives, our meaning true believers, all right, not religious people, but genuine believers, the sons and daughters of God. God sends His Holy Spirit to indwell these individuals, and God's Holy Spirit is in the process, and Paul uses the word, conforming them to the image of Christ, Not to the image of goodness, not to the image of morality, but conforming saved, justified, redeemed sinners into the image of the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that process, my friends, is not for sissies. It is deeply real. And and all of the situations and circumstances in life, God uses in that process. And that's, all, that's the burden of my heart this morning uh, for, for you, uh, my dear brothers and sisters. Now, by way of introduction, I don't know when we went, but a group of us went to Branson. And some of the people in the group spent their entire time in dark theaters watching shows. Uh, we went to one show, and it was awesome, but Kathleen and I went on a couple of hikes around Branson. And one of the hikes was right across the street from Table Rock Lake. We wanted to do the trail on Table Rock Lake, but if you recall, the government shut down all the national parks. You remember that? Yeah, that was really encouraging. Uh, So instead of going to the trail we wanted to go, we went to this other trail across the street. Now, uh, Kathleen and I really enjoy being outside. we get to the beginning of this trail, and there's a sign that, that I could not believe. 
And this trail, this sign at the beginning of this trail was pretty long, and this is part of what it said. When you hike on this trail, you may encounter mud, rocks, roots, inclines, and other natural features. I'm thinking to myself, well, duh, of course, it's outside, it's a trail, that's why, and it, it took me probably the better part of an hour to figure out that really wasn't for the pedestrians. It was because it, it was also a mountain bike trail. And so I think they're basically warning people on bicycles that. But it, it was the stupidest thing I'd ever seen. Uh, uh, anyway, and then there's, there's one closer to home. Uh, we live near uh, Peterson Lake Park. What's the other name of it? There's another name for it. But... Yeah, Johnson Park. Thank you. Is that, y'all own that park? Is it? Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson back there. Uh, anyway, Peterson Lake Park, there's a boardwalk. Has anybody been on the boardwalk that goes back there? To it, It's 1.29 miles there and back. And if you get to the end of it, there's a little place you can get off. And when you get off, there's a little sign that says, caution, natural inhabitants. And uh, I always kind of enjoy that too thinking, well, yes, there might be, you know. But let me tell you that when you're running and it gets dark and all these little bitty things jump away from you when you're running and make noise in the leaves, it's so scary. Uh, And I have seen more than one uh, poisonous snake back in there too. So, yeah, there are natural inhabitants. And I guess when I'm there, I'm, I'm one of them. You've heard the phrase, it comes with the territory, Okay, Uh, that's what Paul was trying to encourage these Philippians about. The things that they were encountering in their lives were not altogether easy or pleasant, and Paul was trying to encourage them that that too was part of their uh, sanctification. All right, here's the text, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Paul expresses his devotion to Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, last week we we talked about Paul is expressing his devotion to Christ, and he, he says it, in ever-increasing intensity. I, I count things lost. I count everything as lost. Nothing compares. And you see him saying it here. The surpassing value of Christ Jesus, my Lord, of knowing him, makes everything else look like rubbish. We talked about that word scubala, all right? Refuse, the stuff you would throw out for the dogs to eat. Nothing is as valuable as knowing Jesus Christ. Now, as we read that, and I guess I may have said this last week, and I'll say it again right now, 
I think that the awareness of the reality of Jesus Christ in our in our lives our relationship with him our knowledge of him our awareness of his presence i'm impressed that that is kind of rare and of course this makes sense some of the people that i could care about i don't feel are very aware of the living grandeur of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what your own experience of that is. I, I know what mine is, and mine's pretty feeble and shabby too, uh, but, but not Paul's. Paul had been following Jesus Christ for about 30 years. Paul was faithful in prayer to the Lord for these believers, and, and you hear him expressing his devotion, the 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 surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Uh, uh, that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the cry of his heart. It's the song that emanates from his lips onto this page to that Philippians church. Now, that's the biggest thing there is. There's nothing more important than that, from the, than knowing Jesus Christ. I, I thought the illustration about the Titanic. I, I'm saved. I'm, I'm on terra firma. That boat went down, but here I am. The idea of being concerned about something that went down on the ship is ludicrous compared to the fact that you're standing here when so many others are not. Nothing else matters like knowing Jesus Christ. All right, now, I have, I have just three points, uh, and they are big, titanic ideas in Scripture about what knowing Christ involves, and Part of my burden is to uh, basically just help you think about some verses that talk about these three things so that you can realize all of these are endemic to our experience as being followers of Jesus Christ. And they're all very substantial concepts in the Bible, and they're core components of knowing Jesus Christ. So knowing Jesus Christ, there's three things that that involves. All right, point number one from verse nine, knowing Christ, and I, I struggle with the verb here. At first I had the word involves, but then I changed it to results in. Knowing Jesus Christ results in righteousness. Now, Paul is talking about two different kinds of righteousness here. There's one kind that he doesn't want to have anything to do with, and there's another kind that he embraces. The kind that he doesn't want to have anything to do with is in verse 9. Do you see it? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Now, if you have your Bible open to Philippians chapter 3, let me just briefly point you back up to verse 3 where Paul says, We put no confidence in the flesh. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we worship by the Spirit of God. All right? Now, you might remember that Paul is tapping into the ideas from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. There's nothing wrong with being wise. There's nothing wrong with being strong. There's nothing wrong with being rich. But if that is the, 
boast of your life, if, if that's what you take joy in, then that is wrong. Jeremiah chapter 9 says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me, that he understands and knows me. Paul is tapping into that theme here in chapter 3. That's his boast. I'm not boasting in self-righteousness. I'm boasting in the righteousness that comes from God. I'm boasting in uh, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. All right, a couple of comments here. Jerry Bridges, and I don't know, I got this out of a commentary. I don't know what excellent book of Jerry Bridges this comes from, but notice what he says here. I believe that human morality rather than flagrant sin, is the greatest obstacle to the gospel today. You could quibble with that. I quibbled with it a little bit as I thought about whether to put this down or not. But what Jerry Bridges is saying is human morality is boasting in the flesh. It is being aware of the fact that we might be better than other people. It's boasting in our status and achievements. And Paul is saying, if you want to boast in that kind of stuff, I've got more than anybody. And he he talks about that in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, where he lists this magnificent seven virtues uh, that that Paul had. Paul says, I'm not boasting in any human accomplishment. What I take Jerry Bridges' comment to mean is this, and I think this is very relevant in our cultural context where everybody here grows up going to church. If if you were to come with us for Thanksgiving back to Des Moines, you would not see a bunch of church buildings that look like junior college campuses. You would see church, little bitty Churches meeting in schools. There are a couple of larger churches, and certainly the the old mainline dead liberal downtown churches are are certainly there too. But Des Moines is not a what Kathleen likes to call a faith friendly or a faith forward environment. Memphis is. There are again church buildings that look like junior college campuses all over the place. You're in one. And, and everybody here goes to church, and you hear the wackiest things, and you, you hear people saying, you know, they, they're, they're exhibiting bizarre behaviors, but there's a church affiliation. That prohibits and prevents people from saying what Paul said. I want to know Jesus Christ. I'm not interested in any kind of personal morality apart from Him. So that's the first point. Knowing Christ results in righteousness. And let me put it backwards the way Paul said it. Paul wanted to know Jesus Christ. Now think about this. This is a guy who'd been a Christian 40, uh, 30 years at least at this point in time. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. I've been a Christian for easily 40 years, probably more than that. I don't want to stop and do the math. But uh, after 30 years, Paul, do you hear what he's saying? I want to know Him. I want to be found in Him. If you're a little bit like me at times, you know, you can be kind of satisfied to the point of complacent with your relationship with Jesus Christ. But as I was thinking about this, and I'm thinking about myself, I will say to to you this. Anything else that you make a passion of your heart is going to have what they call diminishing returns. You need to experience more and more of it 
to have it approximate satisfaction. Not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is an inexhaustible supply. You can never plumb the depths of your relationship with Him, of your experience with Him, of His glory, of His beauty. There's always so much more to experience. I, I, I ran this 5K yesterday uh, with Gary Bynum. Y'all know Gary. He's on the board. He's the chairman of the board of Life Choices. Peter Winterburn is on that board. Uh, they do a lot of great work, and those are two super sharp guys. And somebody gave some money, and Gary said, "Hey, you want to run this 5K with me?" Uh, which I did do yesterday morning, and I killed him. By the way, he was like so far behind me. <laughs> but having said that, there were six guys in my age group. 50 to 59. Now, I'm 58, so I'm toward the upper end of that age group. Let me tell you that there were some guys in my age group that killed me, okay? Uh, You know, my pace per mile did not compare in any way, shape, or form to another 50-year-old, 58-year-old that ran that race. My point is this. There's always somebody ahead of you. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care, Paul, what your bowling score is. There's somebody that's always bowling better. There's somebody that's always climbing higher, running further, faster, etc. Always. Same thing with our relationship with Jesus Christ. So often, it's the condition of our own heart and mind. We're satisfied with this little bit that we have experienced and know. May God use His Word to stir our minds and our hearts so that Christ is beautiful and compelling to us. And all you need to do, I think, is to read the Gospels. You read the Gospels, and He will set you on your heels. He will say things that you don't understand. He will say things that convict you down to your socks. He's our Lord. And uh, nothing else is like that. You know, whatever you pursue, and I have so many things that are fun and interesting and exciting, but none of that stuff is designed to satisfy us the way that Jesus Christ is. May God give us all this sense of holy dissatisfaction, and next week we'll, we'll talk more about Paul's attitude about that. But don't let your own sense of accomplishment satisfy you in terms of your relationship with God. Now, if, if you are also a little bit like me, you can get pretty easily troubled and convicted but when you think about your relationship with God because you know you don't measure up. That, that's, that's pretty familiar territory for me. When I start thinking about who I am versus who He is, uh, the ice gets a little thin, ground gets a little shaky. All right, if that's you sometimes, read this next part. I, I found this on Facebook by a really good pastor. He's quoting from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is Dutch Calvinists. Uh, it's their statement of faith, all right? And the catechism is designed to teach us doctrine. If you don't know schmatz about Christianity, I would, I meant to bring it in here. I would encourage you to read some confessions of faith. It will give you a fully orbed understanding of what your faith is and round out your vast areas of gross ignorance. Sorry, that's just, uh, I don't really mean that. Uh, all right, how are, you, how are you righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? Here's the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Now listen to the explanation. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, 
and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. I hope that helps you realize that if we are leaning at all on our own righteousness, that's not the righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness that comes from God is alien to us. It's completely Christ's. And it comes to us by faith alone. And it's a free gift. It has nothing to do with us. We can't earn it. We never deserve it. But it's ours as a free gift. All right. So knowing Christ results in this kind of righteousness. Now, last two statements here. The goal of faith-based, God-given righteousness is, according to verse 10, a more comprehensive knowledge of Christ, a deeper relationship with Him. It is glorying in Christ, not confidence in the flesh. It is not self-righteousness. Now, I said at the beginning of the lesson, this is a huge theme in the whole Bible, this idea of righteousness. It's why God gave the law to Moses. It, it's, it's what the Old Testament is all about. It's what Paul talks about, the fact that we are justified by faith. It's a gigantic concept in Scripture, and it's all about our relationship with God being settled and whole and complete and inassailable forever. And that nailing down of our standing with God through Christ is designed to draw us deeper and more with more in initiative into knowing Him better in our individual lives. All right, that's point number one. Uh, the first big idea of knowing God is that it results in righteousness. All right, number two, point number two. So now that this standing with God is intact, uh, Paul says these two other things that are kind of two sides of the same coin. Knowing Jesus Christ results in power. I want this to encourage you. I want you to know that while you are completely incapable of producing your own sanctification. You can't make yourself like Jesus. The Christian life is not hard. It's impossible for you to accomplish by yourself. You cannot do it. But at the same time, you should be encouraged that but even though you can't do it, God can. And He's done it time after time after time with far worse people than us. And I want you to expect Him to be doing things in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you with these scriptures. All right, so knowing Christ results in power. What kind of power are we talking about? Well, first of all, look up at verse 10. Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Okay, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Uh, well, here's what it means. God's power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. 
I want to just kind of, I want you to tattoo that on your wrist or something or just say say out loud, God's power is at work in me. Maybe you need to say that every day. Maybe you need to roll out of bed in the morning onto your knees and say, Lord, thank you that your power is working in me. I think we forget about that. I don't think we realize it. All right, let's remind ourselves of of this truth. All right, first of all, just in the book of Philippians, uh, and I didn't write this one down. I I guess I forgot about it. Look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Knowing Christ results in power. Look what Paul says to the Philippians right at the top of his letter. Uh, Here's what he said. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God started the work in you, and he's not going to stop it until you're in glory with Christ. God started it. He's not going to stop it. Now, here's the one I did think about putting down there. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Let me read it from the Bible in case I didn't write it all down. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, because, I'm telling you to work out your own salvation, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You see that? What, what did I say on the sheet here? Let's all say this together. Instead of saying you, say me. Okay, ready? Let's, let's read this little phrase. God works in me both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, now that you know what I'm talking about, let's all do it again together. God works in me both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Knowing Christ involves power. Not your power, but his power in you. I remember going to this seminar. And the seminar teacher said, put your hand on your chest and say to yourself, there is another in me. I'm not in my skin by myself. Paul says, don't you realize you're a temple of the Holy Spirit that God has given to you? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. You're the temple. He lives in you. God's power is at work in you. Oh, really? It doesn't look like it. Well, okay. So maybe something needs to happen there. So that it does look like it. What does Paul say at the end of Philippians? Chapter 4, verse 13. It's on that gray sheet too, incidentally. It's a key verse from Philippians. It's not hard to memorize either. Uh, Take a look at it. He says, and this is really simple. I can, at least simple to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's say that together. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That doesn't mean you can levitate and fly out of the room. It means you can do God's holy will. You can do anything that He commands you to do. Not because you're so good, but because He's in you to do it. Remember that first verse? God is at work within you both to will and to do His good pleasure. You can do that. Paul said he was confident. That was so encouraging to me as an extremely inconsistent young believer. I I was like, Lord, man, I'm not doing too good on this. And when I read that, it was very helpful to me. I hope it will be helpful to you. Uh, all these other verses just say this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this very same thing. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Now, you see all those references in Ephesians and Colossians? Most of those references record Paul's prayer. 
Paul's praying for the Christians. He says this, I pray that God would open your eyes so that you would understand his great power that is working in you. So when you pray, praise him for this great gift of the Holy Spirit, this power assist in your life. And when you pray, ask him for help. Lord, help me do your will. Lord, help me be more like your son. Lord, help me help my heart not to be troubled. Lord, I'm worried about so-and-so. Understand that his power is working in you. Jesus said it, John chapter 15, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul in Colossians says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I don't really know how this works. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than all the other apostles, and it wasn't me, but it was God's Spirit working in me. I don't totally understand that. I don't don't know if I understand it very well at all. But what I would say is that when you strive to obey and commit to obey and do whatever it is that you think God is calling you to do, I think in that step, He helps you. I don't think He helps you sit there and wait for Him to push you out of the chair to make the step. I think He helps you as you obey. Now, help me remember this text. Uh, Yeah, I think it was... uh, Children of Israel were leaving Egypt. They had left Egypt. They're at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army's coming. And I think, help me with this, was Moses praying, you know, Lord, protect us or something? And the Lord basically says, no, stick out your stick like I told you, and everything's going to be okay. Is that it all? Y'all remember? Yeah. Basically, he was saying, I've already told you what to do. I want you to do that, all right? Uh, That's how I think this works. I think we see his power as we take those steps of obedience. Man, thank you. I was really feeling bad there. Uh, Yeah, what are you crying to me for? This is all taken care of. Do what I told you to do. That's that's the point, okay? What's the reference there? Oh, sorry. All right, Uh, come tell us, tell me when when you find it. Okay, knowing Christ results in power. That power comes from the Holy Spirit living in you. That power comes when you take scary steps of obedience. Just take a deep breath and take the step of obedience, whatever it is. Sometimes it's making the phone call. Sometimes it's telling them you were a jerk and apologizing. Sometimes it's saying, I I got something I want to say to you right now. I I just want to tell you how much I appreciate blah, blah, blah. It's Somebody said one time, Whenever you pray, C.S. Lewis, so this is a good idea. Whenever you pray, be willing to be part of the answer. Okay? Whenever you pray, be willing to be part of the answer. Paul said, I think it was at the beginning of Philippians, I am confident that by your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, this is all going to work out. Do you hear that? 
I am confident by your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, this is all going to work out. Not without your prayers. This is how God works. All right, point number three. Knowing Christ results in righteousness. Our our relationship with God is settled, safe, and intact forever. It results in power. There is God is at work in our lives to accomplish His will. Finally, knowing Christ results in suffering. I used to skip over this, quite frankly, because I don't like suffering. I used to avoid it. But now that I've suffered some, I just kind of see the truth of it. And again, this is the advantage that you have. A lot of you have lived a lot of life and you've experienced suffering and you just have learned how God uses affliction for good in our lives. Now, this week, you know, I'm in a small group and this guy is talking about this financial situation that he's in, not because of any foolishness on his own part. And he got this letter recently and it was a letter that just like the sword of Damocles is getting ever closer, the guillotine guy is getting ready to chop the thing. You know, it's just like intensified the stress that he's in. And uh, I have heard Bob Wood recently, he's been, Bob Wood's been memorizing and meditating on Isaiah 43. Uh, I, I, I am with you. I have called you by name. You're mine. When you go through the water, I'm going to be with you. When you go through the fire, I'm going to be with you. It's the basis of that Keller book on suffering. And I turned to Isaiah 43, and I read that to him. God is with you in this. It's awful. He didn't even want to tell his family because, you know, it's just going to make them freak out all the more. So that was one. That's, that's how that, that, that was uh, how my week started. And then a couple of days later, I have lunch with this other person and, uh, out of every good and perfect reason and motive, this person has invested many, many years of his life in serving Jesus Christ. And now they're in transition. And I have seen with my own eyes and have experienced more than once that these transitions are often messy. And when you come to a place of leaving that leaving often isn't as sweet and beautiful as Paul's last conversation with the Ephesian elders on the beach at Miletus when they're all crying and he's saying, I've done everything right and, you know, all that. A lot of times, quite frankly, they're like, we can't wait for you to leave. Uh, We're going to rejoice when you're gone. And here's a little dinky little piece of trash to, you know, symbolize, you know, how much we care about you. Uh, and it's awful, and it's not. It's messy, and and that's what this guy was basically saying, and and he's hurting because of it. And then I saw another person in in very similar circumstances like that this very week, and uh, down at the bottom of the page, uh, this is what I told the one guy: Jesus parting gifts. When he left, he got a 30-shekel kiss, a crown, and a little outdoor soiree on a hill far away. That's how he left. Soldiers beat a crown into his head. People walked by to give their parting shots and said, You're the Son of God. Why don't you come down? He claimed to save others. He can't even save himself. Taunting, jeering, slapping, punching, 
pulling his beard out, beating the crown of thorn into his heads, and then nailed him to a cross. And he says, follow me. What did you expect? You're not home yet. And God uses all of this to refine us and help us say, Lord, and, and all of these verses, don't be surprised. It's nothing in comparison with glory. It's, uh, and Keller talks about this, everybody experiences this trial and tribulation and affliction. We all do. Uh, and, and the last story I heard was a couple, and they have experienced terrific stress in their lives, financial stress in their lives. And now, I was telling Kathleen, uh, if they're in a restaurant and they see a policeman or a fireman, they pay that guy's bill. Not that they can afford to, but they've been in the pressure cooker so long that they have learned to appreciate God's help and provision to the point that you might even say somewhat recklessly, they expend some money out of appreciation. And I thought, that would never have happened without this affliction. Some of our hearts would not be as tender without the affliction. Some of our devotion to Christ would not be as deep without the loss and affliction. He says, you're going to have trouble in the world, but I've overcome the world. I'm with you. So Paul didn't just want to experience the power of the resurrection, but he read it carefully. He didn't want to just experience the suffering. He wasn't like some martyr. Man, this is hard. I love it. That's not what he said. Do you see what he said in the verse? I want to, and it's the ESV is okay, uh, but it doesn't bring it out. He says, I want that I may know him and may share in his sufferings. That's a word we know, koinonia. It's the fellowship. The fellowship, not just the suffering, but the fellowship. It is hearing the sweet voice of Jesus encouraging us. Just take another step. Just keep going. I'm here with you. Don't be afraid. He says all that. This is a big topic in Scripture. God encouraging us. One time a guy said, we follow a Savior who did not quit. He went all the way to the top of the, the hill, and he let him nail him to the cross. I don't know why, but that just touched me deeply, that I'm following a tough Savior. He spent 40 days outside one time, 40 days with no food and water in the desert. And he carried that cross all the way to the top. He was constantly telling the truth, even though he knew it was going to come back and smack him. Uh, he's no sissy. And he's calling us in, in, into this deep reality where we're hurting and have no place to go except to him. And then he says, I know what you're going through, and I'm with you, and I'm here for you, and it's it's not going to be this way forever. So three big things, knowing Christ, our relationship with God is safe and nailed down and secure forever. Nothing can ever affect it. It involves 
genuine God doing stuff for us that we can't do for ourselves. Power. And the third thing is, it, it does involve the realization that Jesus is right there with us when we're going through the, the worst of times. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Lord, we have experienced a measure of this in our own lives. Help us to understand it more accurately based on this text. Help us to, Lord, believe and remind ourselves that you are with us and that our relationship with you is secure and that you are working in our lives. Lord, help us do our part. May we read our Bibles and say our prayers. Uh, May we keep showing up and keep talking to people and building relationships and letting people into our lives so so that you can do your work of making us more like your son. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.